0: There's a new set of opportunities in front of us to apply human knowledge to the most complex problems facing us. You know, how we design cities, how we use data to improve agricultural output and drop carbon yield. We have to do that in a way that's ethical. We have to do that in a way that's mindful of being rooted in community.
1: Welcome to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. You just heard Andrew Schroeder, Vice President of Research and Analysis at Direct Relief, reference the importance of ingenuity, empathy, and technology to deal with worldwide crises and emergencies. Direct Relief is an innovator in humanitarian mission work and was among the first organizations to employ dashboards and sophisticated analysis to counter the coronavirus pandemic. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor lead this conversation about the next level strategy, technology, and practices used by this global leader in humanitarian aid.
2: Andrew, hi, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Thank you for being a guest.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
2: I'd like to start with the 2019 Fast Company article that named Direct Relief, where you're currently the Vice President of Research and Analysis, one of the world's 10 most innovative nonprofits. Tell us about the work that you do and why you think you received this recognition.
0: So... Just to start with, Direct Relief is a humanitarian medical aid nonprofit. We're based in Santa Barbara, California, and what we do is receive donated medical supply, pharmaceuticals, material, equipment, and we Make sure that people in need around the world, both in emergencies and not in emergencies, or in the daily emergency of just not having enough to be able to treat their patient populations, are able to receive that material on a charitable basis for free and in order to make that happen at scale around the world throughout the United States under many different conditions we have to use a lot of different technology to be able to understand need to be able to run a large-scale warehousing and distribution organization be able to communicate effectively with all the various publics that we engage ranging from our donor public companies that we receive supply from the general public and so The way in which we've been able to put a lot of those dynamics together, I think is one of the things that Fast Company was recognizing us for. Specifically in 2019, there were two important projects that were recognized. One was that Direct Relief's headquarters became the first licensed microgrid in the state of California. And so Direct Relief is critical infrastructure for the state of California. And we can operate completely off grid for a pretty long period of time. And, you know, that reflected, I think, a lot of our most recent thinking around the importance of energy resiliency in humanitarian operations. And the other part of that was actually a lot of work that we've been doing with companies like Facebook and other kind of large scale social media data providers to be able to understand how we can take data from social media platforms and other services that track device mobility and similar forms of data to understand what happens in real time to populations in a crisis.
2: Having spent most of your career working in humanitarian aid and global health issues, how do you think the role of nonprofits generally is changing, if it's changing?
0: One of the things that's been changing quite a lot has been the increasing importance or centrality of nonprofits in areas which I think have traditionally been associated with government responsibilities. So direct relief to some degree plays that role in terms of logistics functions that allow for efficient transfer of goods to high need areas. You can see the same kind of thing right now with, say, the role of the Gates Foundation in the development of the coronavirus vaccine. Traditionally, it has been the role of government to do things like large-scale vaccine research and production. And the Gates Foundation has capacity in that area that is large enough that it occupies the same kind of space with government. At the same time that business is being asked, to do more in terms of the public goods function of society. Data is also a good example. The data that we receive from Facebook around the dynamics of people in crisis is something that no government has the capability to do on its own. So we have a right and a responsibility to utilize that for accomplishing the greatest good for the greatest number.
2: Yes, the problems are getting more complex and the solutions are becoming more creative. You have a principle that I wanted to ask you about, because I think it applies to business and governments as well as the nonprofit space. You say it's especially critical to be accurate about the problems you're trying to tackle. Uh, What do you mean by
0: that? What I mean by that really specifically is that it's not enough to have the right values or a kind of general sense of why injustice or inequity exist in the world. In order to actually do something about it, you have to know quite specifically where and how and why those things happen. Lack of access to something like medical resources is a quite specific problem. We need to know exactly where that problem occurs and how big it is and what drugs people need that they can't get access to and the change in that need over time.
2: So what you're saying, Andrew, is that sentiment is not enough. Precision matters. So how do technology and data help provide that accuracy, that necessary precision? And if you have a couple of examples, please share.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of questions around accuracy in in social problem solving do actually come down to data. So we've seen a lot of this now in the coronavirus response, again, to use the same example, in terms of data that goes into models that predicts or has certain kinds of weights on how disease is going to move. I think some of the most important work that's been done has been done by colleagues at Harvard School of Public Health that looked at commuting patterns in New York and measured that against seroprevalence for pregnant women, in part because pregnant women are a good random sample. They don't get pregnant systematically. And discovered that the likelihood of commuting in from outer boroughs was linearly correlated with coronavirus. So you were far more likely to have had the virus if you were in the Bronx or in the northern part of Queens or you know, outside of Manhattan. And that tracked really well to our understanding of risk and vulnerability. You're talking about people that really can't do their jobs remotely they have to show up, they're essential workers. They work in say the mid tier of healthcare or grocery stores or they're traveling on subways. And that meant that their risk exposure was much higher. And we can measure that quite specifically. So that linkage between data model and action becomes the heart of what it would mean to do this highly accurate data-driven health response. We find that when we do that, when we put that data driven picture together, our supporters want to help. You know, companies want to actually be involved, they want to contribute to solutions that actually work, uh, but they need to know that they work and they need to know where those investments will make a difference.
2: What strikes me when I listen to you is that you work in a highly emotionally charged space you know, this humanitarian social causes that you help address, and yet you approach it very pragmatically with data and technology. How do you personally balance those forces?
0: A lot of people get involved in humanitarian assistance for a lot of different reasons, most of which are actually quite emotional. I mean, they're having often a personal experience, and I've had many of them myself, where you see people in need, you visit communities, you see the massive disparities that exist in the world, and you decide that you want to do something about that. I link that experience for myself with then saying, well, if I want to do something about it and I'm motivated emotionally to feel as though this is a social and personal commitment, then, it's incumbent upon me to do that well and we have limited resources and we have limited time we should do that work to the best of our ability and that means actually having methods and scientific practice and access to data and technology and the kinds of communities that technology now makes possible so It's actually an ethical responsibility to be scientific about our approach because it's more likely to actually mean more for the people that we're emotionally invested in.
2: You worked on many crises, starting with the Haiti earthquake to the typhoons in the Philippines, the West African uh, Ebola outbreak, and, and I'm sure many more. You've responded to so many of these emergencies and disasters and crises around the world. How does what you've seen with the coronavirus pandemic compare?
0: Well, parts of it are quite similar. I mean, we've seen quite a lot of infectious disease outbreaks around the world and really serious adverse effects up to and including, as you mentioned, in the Ebola outbreak, both in West Africa and in the DRC, massive loss of life, disruption of society, and really traumatic events. What we've never seen before the coronavirus, not in any of our lifetimes, I think, um, is the existence of a crisis in so many places at the same time at such a high level of impact. I think that that has affected many parts of the response to this crisis in ways that were a little hard to catch up to as it unfolded. Just to give you one example, because we're involved in humanitarian logistics, our responsibility early on, we started responding in China in January, was to deliver PPE, personal protective equipment like N95 masks and gloves and gowns, to healthcare workers in Chinese medical institutions treating a large number of coronavirus patients that were highly infectious, and discovering that shortages were happening at really alarming rates, a need outstripped available supply to such a degree in such a short period of time uh, that it was very hard to catch up with. Everyone needed the same things at the same time in so many different places. We had global shortages of key commodities. That kind of always on everywhere at once emergency has just really never happened before.
2: Let's talk about this incident that you mentioned early on in January when the pandemic was not understood widely. It wasn't even called a pandemic. um, You picked up on reports that a hospital in Wuhan, China, uh, where the pandemic originated, experienced unusual depletion of supplies, like you're describing masks, gloves, other personal protective equipment. How did you see these early signs of the emergence of the disease what caught your attention
0: actually people reached out to us the original connection came via people that we knew that used to work at google that had friends and relatives that were alumni of medical schools in wuhan in particular a hospital called wuhan union hospital which is one of the largest if not the largest hospital in wuhan and began urgently communicating with us that the nurses and the other frontline health workers, doctors that were treating patients at Wuhan Union Hospital were flat out running out of equipment, that they were exposed to a highly infectious disease that was poorly understood, and that this was an issue of really surprising and rapidly evolving shortage, which was very surprising to us because as you know, China makes most of the world's PPE. So. If Wuhan, China, was experiencing this, and we followed up on their on their information, and we had checked out, if so, if if Wuhan was experiencing that level of shortage, it was a pretty good bet that uh, everywhere else was going to start experiencing that level of shortage. We were able to supply them because we had recently begun manufacturing. N95 masks in particular in China as a way to boost capacity for response to wildfire events. And if you recall, back in January, there was a massive set of wildfires happening in Australia did a lot of response to. So we sent hundreds of thousands of N95 masks into Australia to respond to the wildfires. And we had the ability, fortunately, to redirect some of that towards the epidemic outbreak in Wuhan, so the, the two parts of that coming together, having capacity in country and being able to get material quickly across the border allowed us to scale up over the course of a couple of weeks to 50 different institutions in five different cities. Even more important, we learned a lot. We, we were talking regularly with people in China that were understanding the outbreak and understanding what it meant. I began working with colleagues at Harvard School of Public Health to help understand this as well and we fed all of that back into what has now become a truly global response for us. We, we are responding in 40 countries now. We've delivered nearly 12,000 aid shipments inside the United States since January responding to nearly 2,100 medical organizations across the, uh, the United States. So it's been a huge effort.
2: So a lot of our listeners are managing global supply chains in commercial sectors of various sorts, and governments as well. What kinds of lessons learned would you want to share about this experience to people managing global supply chains?
0: A couple of things have become really important lessons for us over the last few years that have paid off in a significant way in the response to the coronavirus response. One that I really like to flag was when we were responding to the Ebola crisis in West Africa in 2014 and 15, we, we kind of had a choice at the time between whether we should invest in building warehousing and logistics capacity inside the affected countries and then move material in, store it, receive it, distribute it, and run a warehousing and logistics operation in the affected areas. Or we could move that to areas where, like Europe, where uh, we could assemble the goods that would be required into kind of units of comparable goods or kits, basically, where we're defining in advance what is likely to be required for something like an Ebola treatment unit, and then assemble things where we're most able to assemble them and move them pre-assembled into areas of operation. So that turned out to be a very, very good decision to take advantage of of kind of comparative advantages of different places. Many people may not fully appreciate how much goes into setting up a warehouse and, and being able to operate an effective network. So don't set that Bar too high. Do that where you're able to kind of make those assembly decisions and and take advantage of access to technology and other things. And then the other part of that is that that was enabled by a lot of research and, and a lot of data that went into understanding how to build those complementary units. And we transferred that over into the coronavirus where, for instance, we had to begin supplying intensive care units. This is not actually something that direct relief normally does. We don't normally work with tertiary complex hospitals in the United States because they don't normally require humanitarian aid. In this case, though, we saw pretty early on that intensive care units, given what we had seen in China, were going to be pressurized in significant ways. So rather than piecemeal distributing one medication here and another medication there, the much more efficient way to do that was to understand Algorithmically, what intensive care units require, put those together as single units and begin distributing support packages directly to intensive care units throughout the country. You refer in
2: some of the writings that I've seen to location as the power of local. So, how does location intelligence contribute to your work?
0: My own work, and in some ways the work of Direct Relief and other organizations I've been involved with, has been completely transformed by understanding location. We talked earlier about the need for accurate response as a way to do justice to the communities that we're responsible to, to the local people that we're attempting to benefit. Location is one of these factors in in life that allows us to link a large number of ideas and datasets and other phenomenon together uh, to be able to produce really, really complex insight into why certain things are happening, to really understand what's happening and how to affect it. Geography changed everything for how I think about the combination of issues and the way that we can do that in empirical terms, and to be able to then do something specific about it because it happens in a place with a community that is quite spatially rooted. And so I I don't think there's any limit to the number of issues that can be approached in this way, or that could be related to one another through understanding uh, how location impacts on society.
2: The work that you do is very powerful and leveraging technology for humanitarian mission and social good. What is an emerging technology you see on the horizon that you're particularly excited about?
0: I would just draw attention in, in one sense to the increasing role of autonomous systems in society. We, we call this by various names. We refer to this around artificial intelligence or robotics. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways in which building forms of automation into everyday social space is changing how we relate to one another, how we relate to the space around us, how we attempt to solve social problems. There's a lot that people are very scared about with this in terms of the possibility of of a jobless future or the possibility of a widening digital divide in terms of whether or not everyone will have access to these kinds of emerging tools. There are good reasons to be nervous. However, there's also a new set of opportunities in front of us to apply Human knowledge in the most organized way we can we can build it to the most complex problems facing us, um, and to do that in a way um, that 's very hands on very immediate you know, how we design cities, how we you know raise crops, how we uh, use data to improve agricultural output and drop carbon yield, how we actually understand real-time logistics for healthcare. All of these things are very, very complicated. They require automation and the use of large-scale data sets and it's something that where the complexity of the problems involves requires these levels of tool and data to be able to resolve. We have to do that in a way that's ethical. We have to do that in a way that's mindful of being rooted in community and that builds the capacity of all the people that we're trying to help. So we're not creating a new digital divide simply by the way we choose to solve these problems.
2: Thank you so very much, Andrew, for this fascinating conversation.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Andrew Schroeder for sharing how Direct Relief uses location intelligence to drive social innovation and economic development. To learn more about location intelligence and solutions for humanitarian assistance and nonprofits, visit esri.com.